trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers can gather to enjoy some camaraderie, find some encouragement, and who knows, maybe learn a thing or two. Eric Peters from epautos.com joins me. Eric, how are you on this fine day? Well, it's nice to step out of the twilight zone and enter a zone of sanity for at least a half hour or so. Yeah. No, I, I'll tell you, I look forward to our conversations for exactly that reason. Um, I talk to a lot of good people throughout the week, but I always know when I get to talk to Eric, this is like my weekly reality supplement. Well, ditto and amen. And let's, let's, try, to, <laughs> let's try to enhance the spread to use the lingo of the sickness psychotics. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing everything I can through this program, just like you're doing through your site, to, to be a super spreader of good information <laughs> and principles and, who knows, maybe a little bit of courage for, for those who need it. Yeah, particularly just the courage to say no. You know, I marvel at this. It's, you look back at the past and you look at even the recent past, for example, back in the 90s. You remember when that one man stood in front of the path of a tank at Tiananmen Square in China? One man yep. did that. And, you know, at the risk of his life, at the risk of being uh, horribly killed by being run over by, I don't know, a 20-ton tank. And all we have to do is say, no, no, I'm not putting on the, the rag of a basement again. No, I'm not rolling up my sleeve and being injected because, oh, I want to go into the store and I want to keep my job. What is your freedom worth to you? Is it worth saying no? That's all it takes to stop this. Well, and, and the pressure has been ramped up so much in the last week, just since you and I last talked. Mm-hmm. Um, I see the stage, <clears throat> excuse me, clearly being set for uh, vaccine apartheid. It's not just vaccine yes. passports. We're talking about the governor of New York, for instance, yesterday openly saying, I want to encourage business owners, make your business off limits to the unvaccinated. And it's not just him, unfortunately. It's not just in New York. This is happening in, happening in other states. And uh, they're also going to use the same mechanism of using corporations and employment uh, to to impose this. They're going to say that you won't be able to work here. You won't be able to transact business here uh, unless you submit to this holy anointing. And at the same time, you know, it's now quite abundantly clear that the holy anointing does not provide you with salvation. People are getting the stupid virus regardless of their vaccination status. And as we talked about a little bit off the air, a half-bright sixth grader would raise his hand and say, well, wait a minute, if the thing doesn't work, why would I take it? Yeah, it's uh, it's very concerning, and and you and I also mentioned uh, before we went on the air, the, there's there are some rumbles now. I you know I don't know that this is going to be fact, but it's it's enough of a rumble. I'll pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack uh, Posobiec on Twitter yes. yesterday mm-hmm. sent out a message saying, "Hey, uh, White House sources saying that Biden's speech is being prepared now to lock down the country within the next week or yeah. so, and has a more solemn tone than Bush's after nine eleven." Yeah, I've heard this as well, and it's quite alarming, and I think it's slightly plausible in that they are losing control of the narrative. It's becoming quite clear on the one hand that the face diapering regime is not popular, that the uh, a broad swath of the population is not interested in receiving the holy anointing that they are pushing with incredible aggressiveness, and they're immensely frustrated by that. 
And so what to do? What to do? Well, they've tried ramping up the fear organ again about the variants, the variants. That's not working. So they're going to use that as the pretext, apparently, to impose another lockdown on the entire country, this time at the federal level, so as to coerce these recalcitrant states, counties, and so on that don't want to participate in this authoritarian tyranny uh, to go along with it. The way I see it, one of two things is going to result from that. Either America is over if people submit to that, if they meekly tolerate it again, um, or it's going to result in an outbreak of something far worse and possibly a civil war of some kind. I mean, I dread that. I hope to God everybody's wrong about this. And and at the same time, <clears throat> I really want somebody to stand up and say, uh-uh, we're not going yeah. any further. Not because they're looking for conflict, but just simply because they recognize we are being backed into a corner that we're not going to be let out of again. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We've been gaslit, uh, those on our side by these people, when all we want is to be left in peace and left alone. Neither you nor I nor anybody that I'm aware of who holds our views is telling anybody else that they can't wear a mask or that they can't get their anointing if they wish to do so. Uh, We're simply asking to be let alone and to make decisions for ourselves. And uh, to put a finer point on it, if we haven't harmed anybody, if we're not causing any problems, leave us be. We are tired of being guilted for things that we haven't done, ordered about based on somebody else's fears that we might do something. Amen, bro. Well, I'm encouraging people, uh, just as uh, uh, this tweet yesterday from Mr. Posobiec did, this is probably a good time to to improve your position, stock up on the things you're going to need. What would you need to be more self-reliant? And hopefully you've been working on that all along. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're going to need the things that are necessary to life, uh, such as food, uh, water. If you live in an area where you don't have your own well water, uh, very important to go out and get water or fill your bathtub or something along those lines. Again, hope to God that this does not become necessary, and I think it will be avoided simply if we don't blink, if we stand up and say no. Throughout the course of all of this, I have refused to put on the face diaper uh, and play any form of kabuki. I've said no. There have been no physical repercussions for it. Uh, For the most part, they've backed down when I've said that. That's all it will take. We're being cowed by a a relative minority of authoritarian bullies. And with bullies, if you stand up to them, they usually cave. And that's what we have to do, far more so, I think, than cringing in our homes, filling our bathtubs with water, stocking up in food and ammunition, because ultimately that's a losing battle. If we think we'll be safe in our houses, if we just hunker down, that's not the case. We have to assert our right to be free. Hear, hear. Well, again, I appreciate uh, your clarity on this subject and your willingness to be one of those who leads out and stands up and and not only says no, but hell no, (laughs) I'm not going to go along with this. Well, what's the alternative? I have this conversation with friends. I have this conversation on the radio and with people who read my columns. What is the alternative? This is not a minor imposition. It's not some petty thing like, oh, the HOA says I can't plant a bush in my yard. We're talking about the imposition of absolute totalitarianism in the name of public health. We're talking about the destruction of your ability to earn a living, to to work, to buy, to sell. In other words, everything that we value that makes life possible is now on the table. We literally have nothing to lose, and we'd better come to grips with that and be prepared to stand up for it. I'm with you there. Um, By the way, let's talk a little bit about the fact that uh, so many of the people who have been vaccinated are coming down ill. In the last week, I know of three people that I personally know, all of whom have been vaccinated, some partially, but they've all taken the shot and have come down with COVID. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't have any specific medical training or background, but I'm pretty sure, based on everything that I've read, that this flu, and it's what it is, it's a variant of flu, is like other flus in that it mutates over time. So if you get a vaccine, even assuming the vaccine works for one particular strain, you're still potentially going to get another strain. And there is evidence that people who rely on vaccines to provide immunity have less immunity, generally speaking, than people who have natural immunity built up um, to viruses and colds and so on. And that the smarter thing to do is to take care of your health, to avoid becoming obese, to avoid smoking, to eating good food, to getting outdoors in the sun and exercising. If you do those things, the odds of your getting dead from this thing are slim to none. And we have to really make a distinction between getting dead and getting sick. Getting sick is a normal part of life. At least it used to be until about two years ago. People would catch a cold. People would get the flu. You would, you would say to your buddy, oh, God, I had a terrible flu. I was in bed for a week. Nobody thought anything more of it other than that's part of normal life, and most people recover from it. And, of course, elderly people who are vulnerable, people who have emphysema and all of that, stood at greater risk of potentially dying from getting a cold or the flu or whatever because their systems are weak and their bodies are weak. But it is the definition of pathological hypochondria for the 99.8-something percent of the healthy population that isn't going to die if they get the Rona, to walk around with face diapers on in, in mortal terror of catching this disease. No, I'm, I'm with you on this. And, and it's, it's a shame, and I'm going to talk about this later on in the hour, how uh, what, what, when people are hesitant, and I think with good reason, as you mentioned, sixth-grader logic mm-hmm. would, would make you hesitant, somehow they're yep. accused of, well, you have a mental deficiency. It's a phobia. Why are you so vaccine-phobic? Yeah. Well, I generally don't take medicines for, for, uh, for sicknesses I haven't got. And I certainly don't take medicines that are known to be risky uh, for a putative sickness that presents almost no risk to me. And which, if I do happen to get it, there are much safer treatments for than taking this vaccine that has had horrific adverse effects, as they style it, including uh, several thousand deaths so far. And again, people should understand that in the past, when you had uh, 30, 40, 50 deaths resulting from the administration of an FDA-approved vaccine, it would be pulled from the market. That's what happened back in the 70s when the swine flu vaccine came out. There were about 50 deaths that were associated with that vaccine, and it was pulled from the market. Now we've got thousands of people dying, including healthy teenagers, and they're still pushing this on people. we got to take a quick break. Eric Peters is my guest. When we come back, we'll talk about the infrastructure bill, which apparently means money for everything. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and of course, LifesavingFoods.com. Eric Peters from EPAutos.com is my guest. And uh, Eric, let's talk a little bit about... uh, Let's talk about the infrastructure bill. We, we've been hearing yeah. about an infrastructure bill for, well, for quite a while. And apparently this is, this is a crown jewel for the Biden administration. We've got to get this thing passed. What are your impressions of, of what constitutes infrastructure when, when we're speaking governmentees? Well, I wish it were what it once meant, which would mean 
uh, building new roads, bridges, repairing existing roads and bridges, but it's absolutely the opposite of that. It's devoting an enormous bundle of money, $1 trillion, to things that are designed to restrict and limit personal mobility, including various boondoggle um, public, that is government-controlled, transportation alternatives, you know, rail and buses and then electric cars and all of that nonsense. And one of the things that's folded into this $1 trillion uh, bill is a new mandate that would be fatwad and hurled at the car industry requiring that all new cars be fitted with effectively a uh, breathalyzer interlock, the kind of thing that you used to have to be convicted of drunk driving to have installed in your car as a condition of being allowed to drive again. Well, to keep everybody safe, they want to install that system in everybody's car at your own expense and, of course, at the expense of your dignity. Once again, everybody is going to be presumed guilty of things that they haven't done for the sake of assuaging the, the, the hystericized fear of neurotic people. What's the justification behind that? I, I have to well, ask. Well, the justification, they say, oh, drunk drivers kill, and then you throw out whatever the number is, which is fine, but I'm not a drunk driver. You know, and the fact that somebody else has, has gone out and driven drunk doesn't make me a drunk driver. It doesn't make me likely to be a drunk driver. So I profoundly resent being presumed to be a drunk driver and having to have my breath or my, uh, my sweat or blood or however they're going to do it sampled every single time I get in the car. But after all, this is a natural extrapolation of the whole concept of these, these probable cause-free checkpoints that have sprouted up in this country way back in the 80s. That's when this started. When the Supreme Court decided it was okay to just kick the Fourth Amendment to the curb and allow government, uh, government cops to, to just randomly stop people who'd abs done absolutely nothing as individuals to indicate they were drunk uh, and compel them to prove their innocence of that accusation before they were permitted to go on their way. So why not put drunk driving breathalyzers inside cars? The principle is exactly the same. And you'll note that it's exactly the same as this whole business with the face typers. You know, you don't have to be sick. You don't even have to be, uh, you know, give any indication that you're sick. Oh, somebody's scared you might be sick, so now you've got to wear a face typer. It's all the same sickness. Wow. Well, that's that's pretty chilling. I mean, I was frustrated when it was, mm -hmm. oh, look, they're ladling out more, you know, dollars to their, their cronies. But yep. um, now that, the, I mean, it's just another, another uh, you know, brick in the wall, so to speak, for uh, keeping us separate from the protection of the rule of law and due process. Well, they wonder why people are turning away from new cars. And, you know, people ask, why is the used car market uh, booming? Well, this is your answer. I think a lot of people are just sick of it. They're sick of these these parenting, uh, uh, controlling uh, cell phones on wheels that cars are becoming, and they want a car that just drives and doesn't watch them and parent them and narc them out and squeal on them. And I think you're going to see more of this as time goes by. So then, of course, inevitably, I, I foresee that the government is then going to figure out some way to eliminate the option by uh, illegalizing cars that don't have this technology. Wow. Let's let's segue into an article you did about the art of the jip, uh, talking about cars. <laughs> yes. and this one really hit home for me because I'm seeing this happen. Um, mm -hmm. Whatever happened to actual mechanical gauges on car dashboards? Mm -hmm. It seems like we've all gone high tech. It's it's all the Jetsons these days. Well, high tech. You mean really uh, high cheap? Yes. <laughs> I, I segue into this article by uh, referencing shrinkflation, which we're all familiar with, about how the, a package of thing, uh, something like bacon, is now 10 ounces rather than a pound, but the price is the same. And it's a way for them to make, you think, make, make the customer think that they're getting the same thing while selling them less and charging them more. 
Well, the car industry is under similar pressures. They're trying to figure out a way to increase their profits and at the same time maintain the price of cars because people are increasingly not able to afford to buy them. And a really good way to do that is to install as many electronic gadgets as possible in the car because the one thing that is getting cheaper in our society is electronic gadgets, things like cell phones and flat tops and all of that because the electronics aren't particularly expensive and most of them are made in cue the orange man voice, China, right? <laughs> so from a manufacturing point of view, instead of having gauges inside the dashboard, you know, specific to that vehicle that have to be designed and that uh, you know, involve more work and more brain sweat to put it all together, uh, just commission a, a you know, one-size-fits-all flat screen and put it in there and that reduces their manufacturing costs, which allows them to increase their profit margin. But the downside for us, the buyer, is that these things have an inherently shorter shelf life than mechanical things. As we all know, you know, who keeps a cell phone longer than about three years, right? Right. After a while, it becomes, even if it still works, you can't update it anymore. And so you toss it and get a new one. And that's the same thing applied to cars. You know, this, the stuff that they're putting in them right now, these flat screens may look really modern and and high-tech and all of that right now. But can you imagine how, how ridiculously cheesy they're going to look five years from now, if, if they're even still working? And since these are the, the mechanism through which you operate a lot of the vehicle's controls, in some cases, like the Tesla, for example, you operate everything, like the fan, the, the AC, the radio, everything through that touchscreen. When it breaks, goes dark, doesn't work, isn't supported anymore, the car is essentially useless. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's just an, another another thing kind of separating us from, I guess, what, what I nostalgically, nostalgically think of now is the good old days. But I'm thinking the, uh -huh. the internal combustion engine is going to be a thing of the past, you know, at the, at the rate we're going. Well, it is, if it will be, if current trends are permitted to continue. It's not that people don't want internal combustion engines. Of course they do, because they're a superior alternative. Very few people would rationally purchase a purely electric vehicle. They do it out of commitment to virtue signaling or because they happen to be willing to put up with the, the vehicle's limitations in exchange for what they perceive to be its benefits. But by and large, for most people, it's an inferior alternative. So therefore, the alternative has to be eliminated. The internal combustion car engine has to be outlawed through regulations. And that's their sneaky, dodgy little trick. They figured out that rather than pass a law, which would result in people objecting, what they do is just pass regulations. And they keep ratcheting up these regulations year after year after year began back in the 70s with the fuel economy thing. At first, it was 22.5 miles per gallon. Now, uh, they want to kick it up to 50. In other words, cars that don't average 50 miles per gallon will effectively be outlawed. Uh, they'll be permitted to build them, but they'll be, be, uh, they'll be hit with exorbitant fines at the federal level, which will make them unaffordable, which serves the same purpose as outlawing them. That's what they're doing with this stuff. Is there any reasonable hope that uh, such regulations could be walked back or, or done away with? You know, I don't know. I, uh, I, I think that it will take, again, just like with the face diapering and the needling, it will take pushback. It will take enough people saying no. Uh, corporate America has become completely woke um, for its own cynical reasons. Uh, it has decided that rent-seeking is preferable to pleasing the market and, uh, and, and providing the things that customers want rather than what government demands. So I don't look to corporations to take a stand and do anything positive, so perhaps it's up to us. Perhaps it's up to us to become latter-day Henry Fords, for example, and just right. build our own cars and offer them for sale. And seriously, that's, you know, that's what built America, and I think that's what's going to rebuild America. We may just have to cut the cord 
and disconnect from these centralized, corporatized structures and say, you know what, I, I don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. We're going to do our own thing. You do your own thing. Eric, great as always to catch up with you. Uh, for mm-hmm. people who want to visit your website, tell them where they can find it. Sure. It's epautos.com. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And once you get there, hopefully it's pretty easy to navigate. We've got a main menu bar at the top that tells you where all the, all the articles are. And we've got a great comment section, which you can access by just looking at the threads and clicking reply like you would on any other website. And unlike most corporate websites, we don't censor people's thoughts. No, you'll actually learn something from the comments. You've got some really smart people who, uh, who regularly visit your site. We do, absolutely. In fact, we had one guy who posted a brilliant article just tearing apart all of the arguments for uh, the sickness psychosis that's spread across the country. Eric, great to catch up with you. Let's talk next week. Likewise, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. Let me say a word or two about uh, that last sponsor. There is a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you click on lifesavingfood.com, <clears throat> it will take you directly to the website where you can look over their selection of food storage packages. Now, you don't have to buy your supply all at once. I know people kind of get it in their minds. Well, I, if I'm going to have food storage, I better have at least a year's supply. That's great, but it's also kind of daunting, at least for most folks. Good quality food storage that'll last you 25 years or more, that's, that's going to cost some money. Now, the good news is Uncle Sam has been very kind in sending us uh, support payments you know, from our own taxes. And I'm just speaking for myself, but I, every, every dollar that Uncle Sam sends to me in the form of stimulus, I spend with the express purpose of making myself as self-reliant as possible. So, you know, the big screen TV, that's nice, but it ain't as important to me as knowing that I can stand on my own two feet and not have my hand out to Uncle Sugar. Check out lifesavingfood.com. Let them know that uh, this message is reaching your ears and enjoy the peace of mind that comes from knowing you're prepared for whatever comes next. You know, in between pleading with us, bribing us, and demanding we do what we're told, those who know best are now telling us, well, they've been telling us all along, follow the science. Man, we've heard that a lot in the last year and a half. Sheldon Richmond has a terrific essay published on uh, everythingvoluntary.com about why science is becoming religion. And by the way, that's not a good thing. I know some people, oh, thank goodness, we wondered if those two concepts would ever come together. You don't want science to be a religion. Here's his take. He says, the popular slogan today is believe in science. It's often used as a weapon against people who reject not science in principle, but rather one or another prominent scientific propositions, whether it be about the COVID-19 vaccine, climate change, nutrition, like, you know, low fat versus low carb eating, to mention just a few. He says, my purpose here is not to defend or deny any particular scientific position, but to question the model of science that the loudest self-declared believers in science seem to work from. 
He says their model makes science seem almost identical to what they mean by an attack as religion. And if that's the case, he says we ought not listen to them when they lecture the rest of us about heeding science. Sheldon Richmond says the clearest problem with the admonition to believe in science is that it is of no help whatsoever when well-credentialed scientists, that is, bona fide experts, are found on both or all sides of a given empirical question. Dominant parts of the intelligentsia may prefer we not know this, but dissenting experts exist on many scientific questions that some blithely pronounce as settled by consensus. That's beyond debate. Now, this is true regarding the precise nature and very likely consequences of climate change and aspects of the coronavirus and its vaccine. But he says, without real evidence, credentialed mavericks are often maligned as having been corrupted by industry with the tacit faith that scientists who voice the established position are pure and incorruptible. It's as though the quest for government money could not in themselves bias scientific research. Moreover, no one, not even scientists, are immune from groupthink and confirmation bias. So believe the science chorus uh, gives credentialed mavericks no notice unless it's to defame them. Now, he says, apparently under the believer's model of science, truth comes down from a secular Mount Sinai. Oh, how about Mount Science? Thanks to a set of anointed scientists. And those declarations are not to be questioned. The dissenters can be ignored because they are outside the elect. How did the elect achieve its exalted station? Often, but not always, it was through the political process. For example, appointment to a government agency or the awarding of prestigious grants. It may be that a scientist simply has won the adoration of the progressive intelligentsia because his or her views align easily with a particular policy agenda. But that's not science. It's religion, or at least it's the stereotype of religion that the science believers oppose in the name of enlightenment. What it yields is dogma and, in effect, accusations of heresy. Sheldon Richmond says, in real science, no elect and no mount science exists. Real science is a rough-and-tumble process of hypothesizing, public testing, attempted replication, theory formation, dissent and rebuttal, refutation, perhaps, revision, perhaps, and confirmation, perhaps. It's an unending process, as it obviously must be. Who knows what's around the next corner? No empirical question can be declared settled by consensus once and for all, even with time, even if with time, rather, a theory has withstood enough competent challenges to warrant a high degree of confidence. He says, in a world of scarce resources, including time, not all questions can be pursued, so choices must be made. The institutional power to declare matters settled by consensus opens the door to all kinds of mischief that violate the spirit of science and potentially harm the public financially and otherwise. He says, the weird thing is that believers in science sometimes show that they understand science correctly. Some celebrity atheists, for example, use a correct model of science when they insist to religious people that we can never achieve absolute truth, by which they mean infallibility is beyond reach. But they soon forget this principle when it comes to their pet scientific propositions. Then they suddenly sound like the people they were attacking in the previous hour. 
Another problem with the dogmatic believers in science is that they assume that proper government policy, which is a normative matter, flows seamlessly from the science, which is a positive matter. Now, if one knows the science, then one knows what everyone ought to know, or so the scientific dogmatists think. It's as though scientists were uniquely qualified by virtue of their expertise to prescribe the best public policy response. But he says that is utterly false. Public policy is about moral judgment, trade-offs, and the justifiable use of coercion. Natural scientists are neither uniquely knowledgeable about those matters, nor uniquely capable of making the right decisions for everyone. When medical scientists advised a lockdown of economic activity because of the pandemic, they weren't speaking as scientists, but as moralists in scientists' clothing. What are their special qualifications for that role? How could those scientists possibly have taken into account all of the serious consequences of a lockdown, psychological, domestic, social, economic, etc., for the diverse individual human beings who would be subject to that policy? What qualifies natural scientists to decide that people who need screening for cancer or heart disease must wait indefinitely, while people with an officially designated disease need not? See, politicians issue the formal prohibitions, but their scientific advisors provide apparent credibility. So here's the relevant distinction. While we ought to favor science, we ought to reject scientism. The mistaken belief that the only questions worth asking are those amenable to the methods of the natural sciences. And therefore, all questions must either be recast appropriately or dismissed as gibberish. F.A. Hayek, in The Counter-Revolution of Science, defined scientism as the slavish imitation of the method and language of science. Sheldon Richmond says, I like how the philosopher Gilbert Ryle put it in the concept of mind. Physicists may one day have found the answers to all physical questions, but not all questions are physical questions. The laws they have found and will find may, in one sense of the metaphorical verb, govern everything that happens. But they do not ordain everything that happens. Indeed, they do not ordain anything that happens. Laws of nature are not fiats. How should we live is not one of those questions which natural scientists are especially qualified to answer. But it's certainly worth asking. Likewise, what risks should you you or I take or avoid? Richmond says there's a world of difference between a medical expert saying vaccine X is generally safe and effective and vaccine should be or vaccination rather should be mandatory. By the way, one of the great critics of science was Thomas Saz, M.D., who devoted his life to battling the medical professions, especially psychiatry's crusade to recast moral issues as medical issues and thereby control people in the name of disinterested science. I've got to come back to this in a few moments. We'll finish up with just the last couple thoughts here from Sheldon Richmond. But I don't know if that gives you some of the intellectual ammo that you've been needing, but it sure speaks to me because I'm not a scientist. And there are places where I would have to say, yeah, you know, that's this is a question for scientists to sort out. But I'm certainly not going to hand over my autonomy. I'm not going to give up my self-determination. At the behest of a a scientist or a political expert or anybody else. That's why I have an individual conscience. And it's something I try to stay in close touch with as much as possible. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just wanted to share an article with you from Sheldon Richmond. This is from the uh, everything-voluntary.com website. I, I subscribe to this. I get the emails several times a week, and it's always worthwhile. Richmond's column is How Science Becomes Religion. He says, most people are unqualified to judge most scientific conclusions. But he says they are qualified to live their lives reasonably. And I like the example he uses here. I'm highly confident the Earth is a sphere and that a water molecule is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. But he says, I don't know how to confirm those propositions. So we all need to rely on scientific and medical authorities, not in the sense of power, but in the sense of expertise and reputation. Even authorities in one area rely on authorities in others. But he says we must also remember that those authorities' empirical claims are defeasible. That is, they are in principle open to rebuttal and perhaps refutation. Because after all, that is the scientific process. Aside from the indispensable and self-validating axioms of logic, all claims are open in this sense. That process is what gets us to the truth. As John Stuart Mill pointed out in On Liberty, even a dissenter who holds a demonstrably wrong view on a question might know something important on that very question that's been overlooked. To our peril, do we shut people up or shout them down as heretics? That's dogma, not science. Great stuff, right? (laughs) Sheldon Richman. Has, uh, has got a really great take on this. And hopefully that, that makes for some useful philosophical ammo for you should you find yourself in a discussion. Notice I said discussion, not argument, about this kind of thing. A lot of people's minds have slammed shut. we got to take care that uh, our minds don't slam shut, you know, in some kind of sympathetic agreement or in some sympathetic reaction to other people digging in and, you know, planting their flag. This is the hill I will die on. Speaking of which... I have to come back to this, and I'm sorry to, to bring this up so often, but frankly, I am stunned at how hard the push has been to vilify and to pressure and coerce the unvaccinated. I mean, where, how do you even deal with this kind of a, a onslaught where we're being told, hey, uh, I think it was the governor of, of New York now is telling businesses, I can't order this, but I would really like you to basically make your shops and your stores off limits to the unvaccinated. Now, some people may cringe when I say, well, that sounds like vaccine apartheid, but it's a segregation of sorts. Can we just be honest and call it what it is? This isn't, you know, something that's just, well, we're just trying to help people and, you know, help them make the right decision. No, it's, it's uh, essentially threatening their ability to live. I mean, how are you supposed to, sh- to shop for food? And by the way, this would affect minority populations. If I saw the correct statistics, it was something like only one in six or one in eight black people in New York City would qualify to go shop for groceries. 
because the vaccination rate is very, very low among their community. Crazy stuff. And of course, if you if you let it be known, I know I don't know if people are asking you. I haven't had anybody come right out and ask me, so are you vaccinated? Probably because I've been pretty vocal about it. But when I meet people, I don't get that question. But if you do get asked about it, isn't it crazy how often someone will say, well, what, you're not vaccinated? Oh, do you have a phobia? Do you have fear? Got a great article here from Kent McManigal. This, too, is from everythingvoluntary.com. And it's a terrific rebuttal to that claim that if you don't like something, you must have some kind of an irrational, you know, fear or mental illness. Kent says, it's odd how everything related to dislike or even just a preference that doesn't include something has been relabeled as fear. If you dislike injections, it's not just a dislike for needles. It's called a fear of needles. And if you don't see the need for a vaccine, so you decide not to get it, people will declare that you suffer from a fear of the vaccine. If you don't want to participate in certain things, you're accused of having homophobia or transphobia. By the way, the accurate definitions of those words would be fear of the same or fear of crossing or beyond. Now, if you distrust government, you don't necessarily fear it. You might just dislike it or even hate it. You might also fear it, but while that may be related, it's not the same thing. If you don't like ice cream, a vanilla ice cream, for instance, it's just not your favorite flavor. Does that expose your fear of cream or of vanilla? Ken McManigal says, uh, I don't like watermelon. Am I cucurbitaceophobic? I hope I said that right. No, he says, that's just dumb. You can dislike or just not love something without being afraid of it. Now, he says, understand, I'm not even talking about using force to stop others from doing anything. Just a personal preference that doesn't include certain things. No fear. But fear, or better yet, phobia, is catchy. And you can guess why. It makes something sound like a mental problem when it may only be a preference. Some over-the-top hatred might be a mental problem, but hatred isn't fear or a phobia. And then he asks the golden question here. Why are these words used in this dishonest way? And the answer is, well, those who who screw with the words that, uh, that are used can screw with your mind. Why might they be doing this to you? Are they afraid of letting you think honestly? I think that's a good question, maybe a good jumping off point for us to talk about how do you tell when someone is trying to manipulate you? The two biggest tells that I have found, and this is, you know, with my, you know, I don't know, 30 plus years behind the microphone, but about 25 years of really paying attention. Anytime someone is either writing something or speaking something or portraying something in a way that either makes me feel fear Or anger. They're trying to manipulate me. Now you may say, Brian, that sounds really paranoid. But given some of the things that we know about uh, how our media operates, how it will shade the truth, and I'll just use this as an example since this is kind of current event. For how long was it absolutely forbidden? You could not remain in polite society if you so much as as theorized that maybe that uh, COVID virus actually came from a laboratory rather than some wet market in China. 
I mean, they were literally shutting down the, the, the big tech people like Facebook and Twitter and others were literally shutting down people for even suggesting such a thing. There's no, how could you say such a thing? And yet, just a couple of months ago, it became very mainstream. And it actually became okay. It's permissible to question. Why is it that, uh, that the arrows seem to point back to Wuhan laboratories as the source for this virus? See, I don't spend a lot of time chasing conspiracies. I know a lot of people who do, and, you know, frankly, Alex Jones has, has made a very successful career of it. Good for him. I just think there's enough stuff going on out in the open that I don't want to waste my time chasing those conspiracies. But isn't it odd? Why did the press lean so hard? You know, the objective press, the ones that are there to tell us what's going on, you know, minus the misinformation. Nah, they were there to control narrative. And if they're controlling narrative, I can only surmise that that uh, control comes at the behest of those who need to control how we perceive the world around us. Who need us to believe pretty much the same things or be on the same page, at least for most, uh, you know, current issues. It seems to work pretty well. I look at people who, who still read the newspaper. Sadly, that's that's a very dying demographic. Sorry, newspaper folks, but, you know, your, your days are pretty numbered. But the fear that's being pimped right now through the printed press, through the broadcast press, through, through most mass media news organizations, I'll just call it the corporate media, couldn't be more blatant. And you have to train yourself to, to, to recognize, wow, these words that are being used in the headline or these words that are being used here are, are making me anxious. And that's the good time to stop and say, okay, why would someone want me to feel anxious about what I am reading here or what I'm seeing or hearing? That's not paranoia, by the way. That's just a good, healthy sense of skepticism keeping you from being a dupe. So I recommend it highly. Thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for being a part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. I'd like to ask a small favor. Please visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Subscribe to the podcast. You can become a regular monthly supporter if you'd like to. A couple bucks a month goes a long ways towards helping keep the wolf away from my door. And it's greatly appreciated. This is... Is the Brian Hyde Show.